You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Church, you can be turning in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. Because we're on the home stretch. We're wrapping up this story of, of Esther that we've been taking a look at. And uh, it's been fascinating. One of the big themes throughout this whole story you've probably picked up on is the providence of God. God's veiled providence. The fact that this, it's almost like this hidden hand of God has been lurking in the background the whole time, directing, guiding, intervening. But we call it his veiled providence because, y'all, it's always been there, but we don't always see it, do we? In fact, you can see through the first five chapters, it's hard to see God's providence. This ugly, evil, wicked man named Haman seems like he's winning, and he's, it seems like he's going to succeed in exterminating the, the Jewish people. But then last week we got to chapter 6, and chapter 6, wham! God's providence just storms to the front of the story. And it becomes clear he's been in control all along. And so you can see God's people are going to be spared from death. You can see that Haman is going to receive justice. And and it's done in a way, it's still kind of veiled. I mean, maybe you could say, hey, these are just crazy set of coincidences. Who would have thunk it? But the Jews know better. God's people know better because they're seeing with eyes of faith. And with their eyes of faith, they can see God's providence at work, they can see God working to do exactly what he promised that he would do. And so the, chap- the question for them and for us as we get to chapter 8 is, okay, w- when you see God's providence clearly in front of you, what do you do? What do you do next? I mean, what- what's his job and what's my job? Or if God's totally in control and, and engineering everything, do I-, do I do anything? Or do I just kind of sit back and let go and, and let God and relax? You know, sometimes I think we see God's providence kind of like watching TV. And, you know, you can see the analogy works. I mean, the, the signals are always there. They're always going. But then you tune your TV to the right channel, and finally you can see, and you're, be able, you're able to tune into what's been there all along. And then how do, how do you react to that? Well, you put your feet up, you kick back, and just watch. And, and so, like, the more you see, the more passive you become. Is that how we respond to God's providence. You know, it, it can sound logical. You can make an argument for it, but y'all, it doesn't pass the experience test. So maybe people who have heard about God's providence may think that's how we respond to it. But I'm telling you, that is not how anyone who has experienced God's providence in their life, that's not how anyone actually reacts and responds. Yeah. I think viewing, seeing God's providence, it's a lot more like looking at an x-ray. So again, the analogy works, right? There's something underneath the surface. It's been there all along, whether you see it or not, but then through faith or through some gamma rays, I don't know how x-rays work, something, you can see what's been there all along, and finally you can see it. Now, if a doctor looks at this x-ray here, the more he looks at at it, is he going to just get more and more passive? Is that how a doctor responds? Rub some dirt on it, yeah. Maybe a dad, but not a doctor, okay? Yeah. No, the doctor sees that. He is going to act. In fact, the more he sees of what was once hidden, the more actions he will take. He's going to put a cast on. 
If he is nice, maybe he'll give you some painkillers. He's going to set a future appointment. He's going to set the bone. He, the more he sees, the more he responds. So how about us as believers, as Christians? The more of God's providence we see, how do we respond? Well, I think this is what the text is telling us this morning. We respond to God's veiled providence with visible faith. We respond to God's veiled providence with visible faith. So let's turn to chapter 8. As chapter 8 starts, Haman is dead. What is it they sing? Hi-ho, which is dead? Hi-ho, the Dario, Cherio? I don't know. Haman's dead is the point. I'm I'm, I'm mixing all kind of different things uh, in that analogy. Haman's dead, but the Jewish people aren't out of the woods because they're still under this death sentence. The law that Haman passed is still there. So you could think of it this way. Haman is dead, but the death sentence still lives. Something has to be done about that. And so now Esther, for the third time, is going to go intercede for her people with the king. Let's read, starting in verse 4. It says, When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right to the, before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The king Ahasuerus said to the queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So Esther goes again to the king. We're going to see what's the king going to do. And thankfully, once again, God's providence is at work. In fact, he gives Mordecai his signet ring and says, you know what? Write whatever laws you like, Mordecai. And that was say, what providence? Mordecai here is more powerful than Haman ever was. Haman had one law written, and the king gave him his signet ring to essentially sign his name to that specific law. Here he gives Mordecai a blank check. Here's a blank check. Here's a stamp with my signature. Write whatever you want. We know this is God working in the background to bring about his purpose. And we see it also through, through Esther, again, for the third time. Remember, she goes before the king without being summoned. There's two things, two options what may happen. Either he will raise his scepter and accept her, accept her or he'll chop her head off, and she's dead and gone and done. Again, she's risking her life. And, and think about this journey that Esther has gone on. And early in the story, y'all, she is scared. She is afraid. She does not want to identify herself as a Jew. She does not want to uh, even be uh, participate in the king's beauty contest. And then she's nervous and scared about even going before him. But now here we see her boldly for the third time coming before the king. How do you explain her transformation? How do you explain this increase in faith? Well, I would argue She's seen more and more of God's veiled providence at work. The more she saw God's veiled providence at work, the more she expressed a visible faith. That was her reaction. And notice, 
That visible faith, every time that visible faith looks like interceding for others. That's what her visible faith looks like. And y'all, I'm not sure I would have understood it the same way as, as Esther. Think about how easy it would have been for her to look around and say, yeah, God must just love me. I mean, look at all that His providence has done for me. I'm the queen now. I'm so comfortable and I'm so happy. All His providence has been for my own power, my own position, increase my possessions. Thankfully for us, thankfully for the Jewish people, though, the prosperity gospel hadn't quite been invented yet. And so she understood God's providence in a different way. See, she understood it's not all about my possessions, my position, my power. It's about His purpose. And His purpose is to help others. So I think there's something the text is telling us here, and really all throughout Scripture, the text tells us, y'all, visible faith, it's a team sport. It's a team sport. You cannot express visible faith only to yourself. Know that even your even your faith isn't just for you. Think about think about some of Jesus' last words to his followers, his disciples. He takes them to this upper room right before he goes and to, to display the ultimate act of God's providence: the Son of God dying and then being risen from the dead. The ultimate act of God's providence. Jesus sits down with his disciples and he says. Here's how I want you to understand this, what's about to happen. I'm setting an example for you to follow. And then he washed his disciples' feet. He said, in light of the providence you're going to see, your visible faith looks like loving and serving one another. It's sad to say, but think about what's one place that is easiest to make all about ourselves? I would argue one of the places it's easiest to make all about ourselves is the place we're sitting in right now. It's church, right? Because I got plenty of options out there. I mean, there's hundreds of options for me. And so it's easy to make church just about my preferences, how I want to spend my time and how it's serving my growth and my spiritual life and what God wants to tell me and how I like my coffee. Anyway, it is so easy myself included, for all of us to just kind of turn into me monsters in church. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, part of the reason is because our, our culture really hardwires into us that our faith is only personal. And so our, you know, our, our, our faith, it's always an individual faith, and it's really about just my individual relationship with God. Y'all, let me tell you, that's part of the story, but that's not the whole story. Not by a long shot. Think about, think about the, the major metaphor the New Testament uses for the church. It's the body of Christ, right? How many bodies are there? There's just one body. And each and every one of us are just a part of it, just a member of it. And so if any member or all the members claim to exist just for themselves, guess what? That's, that's going to be a pretty funky looking and dysfunctional body, isn't it? You better believe it. And so the biblical picture for faith and spiritual life, the biblical picture isn't me grow, it's we grow. I know that's not grammatically correct, but it rhymed. It's not me grow, 
as we grow. And so, listen, if you want to find a miserable, legalistic person, find someone whose faith is only about themselves. You know why they're, they're miserable? It's because it's like some little finger who's detached itself from the body, thinking it's going to grow and prosper on its own. But y'all, it's not growing. It is shriveling up and withering away. That's what's happening. You know, when thinking about this text this week, I remember a, one of my teachers told me when I was a little kid, a teacher told me that she, joy equals Jesus, others, yourself, in that order. I still remember it to this day. And you know, I got to tell you, the longer I have lived, the more I've found that to be true. Jesus, others, then yourself. And isn't that what we see from Esther? But imagine if we hadn't. I mean, Imagine if Esther had interpreted all God's providence as being just for her and just, just left it that. Can you imagine the conversation in heaven afterwards? You know, when God goes and says, hey, I'll, I'll put you in a place amidst my people. I showed you your purpose. Why didn't you make your faith visible? Why, did, why didn't you put it to work? Now, imagine Esther responds with some of the same excuses we use. Well, I didn't like the music, God. I don't like the music that king kept playing. You know what? Or I was just too busy. I was doing other things. I'm the queen after all. I've got a couple things on my plate. You know what? I was, I was tired. I needed some time to myself. I was nervous. I was scared. I'm sorry, God. I didn't trust you. I didn't, I didn't have faith. You know what? I didn't like the people in my small group. They were annoying. They got on my nerves. And so I just couldn't do it. You put that in the story... Those answers really don't hold water for Esther, do they? Men and women, you have to ask, why are you any different? Why are you any different? God has put you in a place amidst his people, shown you his providence. So how will you respond? We respond to God's veiled providence with visible You know, we don't just see visible faith from, faith from Esther. We're going to see it from Mordecai also. The king expressed a problem in verse 8. He said, an edict from the king can't be revoked. And there's a lot on the line for this. I mean, the, the king's whole character was on the line, and, and they like to pretend the king did that he was perfect and flawless and never made a mistake. And so to revoke a law would mean him saying, you know what, there like one time I wasn't perfect. And the king is not prepared to say that. And so in the Persian kingdoms, you could not revoke a law because the king is perfect. He put that law in, and so you can't take it back. So how easy would it have been for Mordecai to just throw his hands up, right? I mean, listen, can't revoke it. Nothing I can do. Plus, you know, God's in control. Uh, Amy Grant saying it, so it must be true. And so I'm just going to kick back and relax and, and sit and watch what God does. That's not what he does, though. What Mordecai does is thoughtful and it is brilliant. It is not passive at all. He, what he does in verse 11 and 12 is he writes a new decree. He writes a new law that gives the Jews the right to protect themselves, the right to fight back from those who come against them. And even the way he writes it is brilliant. What he, what he does is he matches the five specific points of the original law. He matches it point for point, as if he's saying, I'm finding a way to undo this previous law. 
when he does this, y'all, this amazing thing happens at the end of chapter 8, and it's almost unheard of in the Old Testament. So what they do, they send out this new law, they send it out, again, all 127 provinces, and there's rejoicing, there's celebration amongst the Jewish people, but then other people notice. Let's read, we'll pick it up in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 8. It says, The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen in them. So many of the Persians became Jews because of what they saw. I can't tell you how rare this is. Almost always in the Old Testament, what happens is when when the Jews mix with foreigners, guess who influences who? Usually the foreigners have the biggest influence on the Jews, and the Jews end up becoming like the foreigners. But here, one of the only instances in the Old Testament, we have other nations becoming Jews. See, what would make the Persians do that? Well, I think they saw the veiled providence of God mixed with the visible faith of the Jews. And it was compelling. And they said, I want that. You know, I got to thinking, this is really the story of my life. What made me come to faith? God put people in my life who had a visible faith, a faith that I could see, a faith that impacted me. Coaches, teachers, camp counselors, Sunday school teachers, friends, a whole bunch of people. And their lives and the way they treated me, they were compelling. But you know what? Then he added to that. See, then he worked through his veiled providence. Times he spoke to my heart. Times he, he helped me in times of need. And those two things together produced faith in me. You know what? My guess is it worked just about the same in your life. You saw visible faith in others, and then you, you experienced the, the veiled providence of God. And you know what? I would say any ministry that has ever happened in this church, every life that has ever been impacted, it's been in this way. God's veiled providence mixing with our visible faith to produce faith in others. This is what I want you to remember, church. God uses your faith not just for you. He uses your visible faith to save others. As we go into chapter 9, we're going to see even more expressions of visible faith from all the Jews. Remember, the edict still remains. The day is coming, but now the Jews can, ha- can fight back, and they're going to have to fight back. They're going to have to fight with their faith, and they do. Let's read verse 1, chapter 9. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Again, God's providence reversing things. It's at work. But again, the Jews can't just kick back and be passive. They have to fight with their faith. And as they do, God gives them victory. So much so that later in verse 16, it says God gives them relief from their enemies. That word is rest is the same word we get, the word Sabbath. When all the work is done and all that's left to do is rest because there are no more enemies to fight. Well, there's something really interesting as this day unfolds. Remember the, 
the edict that Mordecai passed, it, it gave the Jews the right to plunder the possessions of their enemies, because that's what the original edict had said. And so the Jews had the right to do the same thing. And so they had every right, once they conquered an enemy, just back their Yule altar truck up to that guy's old house and take whatever they wanted. But the text says five times, five times the text points out Israel didn't lay a hand on any of their possessions. They didn't take a single thing that didn't belong to them. Why, why not? Why wouldn't they do that? They had every right. Visible faith. They understood it's not about enriching ourselves. It is about God's providence and His purpose. His providence has saved us, and we will respond in kind. We will honor Him in the way that we respond. They didn't take all the stuff. You know what they did instead? They made a holiday. They made a feast. Verse 20 through 22, the end of chapter 9, says this, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is the creation of what's today called the Feast of Purim. Uh, it's still celebrated by the Jewish people today. In fact, it's the only Jewish feast not given by Moses, not in the Pentateuch. You can think of it as kind of like a mix of Christmas and Halloween. So all the kids, they'll get dressed up, and they have they get pots and pans and rattles, and what they do is they read the story of Esther, and every time the name Haman is mentioned, because they hate Haman so much, all the kids will hiss. They'll go, and they'll bang the rattles every time Haman is mentioned. But then they also give gifts to each other. Again, it's even incorporating this visible faith that, that reaches out. And they named the feast after the purr. That was uh, after you can think of them as casting lots. It's kind of like a game of chance with these purr. You can think of purr as dice. And remember, that's, that's how they decided which day they were going to kill all the Jews. And so they'd be like, okay, December, day one, and they'd roll the dice. No, day two, roll the dice. All the way to they got to day 15, snake eyes. That's the day we're going to kill them all. And they named their feast after that. Well, it's to remind them that it wasn't a king, it wasn't the forces of evil, it wasn't powerful men, or it wasn't even dice that were in control of their destiny. It was the veil providence of God. God made a way where there was no way. Even when the king's law couldn't be revoked, God worked it out, and God gave them rest from their enemies. You know, if you think about it, the ultimate purpose of creating a holiday this holiday, or really any holiday we celebrate, I mean, part of it is to tell our kids about and future generations about and remember what happened in the past, but it's for a larger purpose. It's for the purpose that we will carry it forward, the lessons into the future. And that's exactly what Mordecai is doing here. He, he wants all future generations to know about God's providence, because here's what Mordecai knows. He knows Haman is long gone, but there's still plenty of enemies. And even to this day, enemies still abound, don't they? 
we yet have final rest from all of our enemies? No. All around, sin, depression, greed, sickness, hatred, even Satan himself is still prowling. This celebration, you know, it's a way of holding up the x-ray to God's people, saying, look, remember, the providence of God, it was there then, and it is still here today. That's what the New Testament tells us. The New Testament, it points forward to a final rest that you and I will have from all of God's enemies forever, a final Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, he says, all the individual times that, that God gave people rest from their enemies for a little while, they're pointing us forward to a future greater rest, finally, from all enemies. And so that's why I said it. He says that there still remains out there a rest for the people of God. And this is the rest that Jesus promises us. What did he say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest for your souls, he says. This is that ultimate rest, permanent rest for your soul. But he says you have to come to him. You have to come to him for that rest. Why do you have to come to him? Because we, too, are sentenced to death by a law that cannot be revoked. It's a law that can't be revoked. But for us, it's not the law of some drunk, half-crazy king. It is the eternal, righteous law of God. Be holy as I'm holy. That's what he says. But we're not holy. The Bible says like sheep, we've all gone astray. And so our sins, our lack of holiness, creates a separation between us and God. So how can we be reunited? We may say, well, just throw away the law. Toss away the law. Can't be done. Can't be done. God cannot repeal his law any more than he can repeal his very character. It is impossible. So, we're out of options. What can we do? Apart from the providence of God. And men and women, Jesus is the providence of God. Jesus is the only way to get rest from our enemies because he made a way where there's no way. Romans says it this way. Romans says Jesus is both just and our justifier. So he's just in the sense that he was perfect. He perfectly upheld the law. The law was kept. It wasn't just tossed aside. It was kept. And he's our justifier in the sense that he paid the penalty for our law breaking, and he gave us his right standing before God. And so he is the one that makes us worthy and acceptable to God. That's why Jesus is the only way to get rest from the enemies of sin and death. That's why we have to come to him. God did that. God sent Jesus in his providence. So how will you respond? You know, something that Mark says all the time, and he's absolutely right, it is no accident that you are here. It is by God's providence that you are here today. And maybe it's because you needed to hear this. And maybe it's because you need to respond with visible faith, possibly for the first time. Maybe that's by repenting of sin. Maybe that's by talking to me or one of our elders here. Maybe that's by, you know, wiping the dust that's been collecting on your Bible for a long time and picking it up today. Maybe that's by coming back next week. I don't know. But there's some form of visible faith that God wants you to respond with. 
And then I'd say for us believers here, I'd ask you this question. Will your visible faith be all about you, or will it be for others? Remember Esther, she figured out God wasn't working for her position, her power, her possessions, but for his purpose. And that purpose was to intercede for others. And then all the Jews, when the time came to fight, the Jews didn't take for themselves, but they fought for one another. And remember, the Persians saw this, and it produced faith in them. And so we ought to ask, what, what will make the people around us come to faith? What will reproduce faith in the people in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in all the places we interact with? I think it will be when, when those people see, they see a faith, a group of people whose faith is about living generously. When there's a group of people for whom even church isn't all about them. You know what? There's one thing I know for sure. I know for sure, y'all, we will never make an impact in this community when we come to church because the coffee is just right and the chairs are comfortable and we like the music and everyone is just like us and it fits our schedule. Y'all, the world can find that a hundred other places. Our chairs aren't that great. There's better chairs. I don't know what to tell you. You know what will make people notice? You know what people will stand up and notice in our culture? A person who has seen the providence of God through Jesus Christ and responds with visible faith. A person who says, like Esther, you know what? God put me in a place. He surrounded me, by, by, he's surrounded me with his people and for his purpose, and that's what I'm going to live for. I mean, picture this. Picture this. What if we had a waiting list? for people to serve in our kids' ministries or, or go on the mission field or, or greet people, whatever. What if we had waiting lists of people eager, willing, can't wait to express their visible faith to the people around them? Tell me that wouldn't stand out in our world today. Y'all, that would, that would be visible in the way a bright, shining star is visible in the dark night sky. We live in a world that's all about me, but in a world that is all about me, visible faith that is about others will stand out. I'll say one more time. We respond to God's veiled providence with visible faith. How will you respond? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.